Josh, it's really coming down out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, Danny, I'm glad that you were at least willing to go get the supplies to brave this bad weather. Of course, anything to help. That's great, thanks so much. Wait, wait a minute. Vodka, tequila, Coke Zero? A gallon of cooking oil, poppers, a Denny, what, what is this? What? You told me to get the essentials. Welcome to Hot Red Shorts, a gay watch of Baywatch. Two gay guys watching Baywatch and talking about it. I'm Josh. I'm Denny. Today we're going to talk about Baywatch Season 1, Episode 11, Shelter Me, or the way we watched it on the German DVDs, Hostage in the Storm. Ooh. Yeah, we don't really look at the titles very often, but this time it was like, I, I saw it and I noticed a couple words that were like, that doesn't mean shelter me in German. What is it? Hostage in the storm. I think it's more appropriate. Yes. For this episode, but also I'm going to try to do that. Note that because who knows what these translations uh, might be. Transliterations, I guess I should say. Anyway, this episode aired originally on December 8th, 1989, a Friday at 8 p.m. on NBC. <laughs> And because this is season one, it was still on network TV, so I was able to find out a little more factual information. But before we get to that, the news, what was happening in December of 1989 to try to ground us in the context, what was happening at the same time. On the 3rd of December, just a few days before this episode aired, President George Bush, the first Bush, and Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev, they declared that the Cold War was now over. That confrontation is now over. The nuclear threat, while far from gone, is receding. Eastern Europe is free. The Soviet Union itself is no more. This is a victory for democracy and freedom. It's a victory for the moral force of our values. Every American can take pride in this victory. I was four at this time, so I'm probably not gonna remember anything that happened at this time, so. Which is fine, because honestly, I couldn't really find all that much really interesting and pertinent stuff was happening at the end of the year, but that's pretty big news. That is, ba that is major. Yeah, now maybe something a little more major to people younger than us, but, but around our same cohort, on December 13th, 1989, Taylor Swift was born. Oh. Yeah, much more exciting I, for, <laughs> for some people, I guess. Most pertinent to us in this particular show that we're doing on December 9th, the day after this episode aired, David Hasselhoff married his second wife, Pamela Bach. I don't know who that is. That's fine, because we're going to end up meeting her eventually. But first, they met in 1985 while they were taping an episode of Knight Rider. She appeared as a guest star, she was an actress, and they met. Well, Bach would go on to appear after their marriage in 12 different episodes of Baywatch as reporter Kay Morgan. Again, we haven't met her yet because we haven't watched that many early season episodes, but we will. And then after that, she shows up twice more on Baywatch as two different characters. And things were going so well, she even appeared in an episode of Baywatch Nights. Oh. Which happened to feature werewolves. Yes. <laughs> yeah, every time I look at Baywatch Nights, it's like, why aren't we watching that? But uh, stuff for the future. Hasselhoff and Bach would later divorce in 2006. Is this the one he had the uh, daughter with? Yes, they had two daughters, actually. So, and we'll 
talk about more sordid stuff maybe as things get closer to that time. But for now, these are new nuptials, and, and maybe we'll see a little spring in Mitch's step because <laughs> uh, behind the scenes, things were going so well for him. Anyway, uh, in movie news, it's 1989. And since this episode aired on a Friday originally, let's look at what was playing at the theater at the time. December 8th, She-Devil opened. I saw that with you here on your couch. Yes, uh, it's one of my favorite forgotten movies. It was Roseanne Barr's starring vehicle, and it also features Ed Bakley Jr. as her 'er ne'er-do-well husband, ex-husband, and... Meryl Streep. (laughs) Meryl Streep opposite Roseanne in a movie. It is, if you haven't seen it, it is fun and goofy and wonderful in so many ways. It's a good women's revenge film. I'm taking back control of my life, Bob. As long as you all are under my roof, things are going to be done my way, starting now. Also at the theaters, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. A classic. And Glenn's father forces us to watch <laughs> that every single year, but it's a, it's a good one. Back to the Future 2. The time traveling is just too dangerous. Better that I devote myself to studying the other great history of the universe. Women. Steel Magnolias. I only just watched that recently. For the first time? Yeah. And did it get you? Of course it did. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's interesting to see, like, time removed if, you know, because I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the memes and, like, the jokes and things yeah. from it. Drink your juice, Shelby. Here's the juice. Shelby, Shelby, you need some juice. You need some juice. Yes, but that scene still worked for you? Yes. Oh, that's great. So those are amazing actresses. I mean, anybody should be into that. And The Little Mermaid? I uh, remember watching that for the first time at my friend's house on uh, VHS. Well, if you were only four, it's probably yeah. not the best movie to bring a child to, but it's definitely my favorite of the Disney Renaissance still. But most pertinent to us in this particular episode, which we'll talk about a little later, The Wizard, which starred Fred Savage and introduced Super Mario 3 to America. That wasn't just a TV movie, right? No, that was a theatrical oh, really? okay. release, yeah. I remember seeing it at home, though. Fred Savage was a pretty big deal at the time. And Christian Slater was also in that movie, who was a pretty big deal back then. He played his older brother. I just remember uh, Fred Savage. We'll get more into The Wizard in a little bit. For music, Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire was Billboard's number one song in America when this episode aired, followed by Another Day in Paradise by Phil Collins, which I didn't recognize from the title, but as soon as I heard it, memories came rushing back, and Blame It on the Rain from Millie Vanilli. (laughs) They hadn't quite been fully exposed for the lip-syncing scandal. The, the concert that revealed the footage that sort of started all happening had, had happened a few months before, but they were still very popular. But across the ocean, in the United Kingdom, the new kids in the block were still holding steady on the charts with the right stuff. Good music all around. And back to television, like I said, since this is season one of Baywatch. It's still airing on network television on NBC. And I was able to find the Nielsen ratings for that week uh, from back then. Now, Baywatch aired at 8 p.m. on NBC, like I said. And tonight, it was beat by a new episode of Full House. Season three, episode 11, Aftershocks, which was on ABC. Did that involve like a... Uh, earthquake? Of course. They're in San Francisco, so this is actually post-earthquake and the whole family responding to it. What if there's another earthquake? Have you been thinking about that a lot? I try not to, but people are always talking about it. 
and it's on TV. And there are all those garbage trucks that feel like moving earthquakes. I don't remember an episode about that. I don't either, but it fits perfectly. Like, why wouldn't a show set in San Francisco in the 90s not talk about earthquakes? And I can only imagine the calm, placid drama that occurs <laughs> uh, across that episode. It beat Baywatch soundily. And then at 8.30, there was a new episode of Family Matters. This was season one, again, episode 11. These are all episode 11 because they all debuted at the same time, called The Quilt, which was one of the more serious episodes featuring the grandma and a family oh. quilt, which wouldn't be fondly remembered necessarily for fun, but it also beat Baywatch. So you can kind of start to see why Baywatch didn't last that long on network. And I think once we get through this episode, we'll see that things got much better once they were syndicated, <laughs> or at least more entertaining. Now, also on that night, after Baywatch aired, after after those two episodes that beat it, TGIF was still rolling along. Perfect Strangers and Just the Ten of Us aired right after that. Two of my favorite shows of all time. So I remember Perfect Strangers. I don't remember Just the Ten of Us. I'm glad that you said this because it's a perfect opportunity to talk about Just the Ten of Us for the minute. It has a lot of connections to other pop culture, but in particular, it was a spinoff of Growing Pains. Mike Seaver, her camera. Yeah. He, one of the sport coaches in the school, he got a spinoff and he was a Catholic father of a family of a whole bunch of daughters. And so it, just the 10 of us, it means the family union is 10 people. So it's two parents and 10 children and five of them are girls. And this guy is a very alpha male type. I mean, he's a basketball coach, I want to say. And they end up going to a Catholic all boys school. And the drama in the show is now that these, well, four of the girls are teens and hot chicks of various different types and them integrating into this all-boys school. So who are the uh, other characters besides the mom and dad and the five girls? Other children. They have two babies, They and then they have two younger kids. And there's actually a lot to talk about here. I'm probably going to go way too much into this. But one, uh, the most notable cast member that people would remember from Just the Ten of Us is Heather Langenkamp. And Heather Langenkamp, you wouldn't know because this is not your genre. She starred in the first and a few other Nightmare on Elm Street films. Okay. As Nancy. She's one of the main characters. Fantastic. And she's really great as the most uptight of the Lubbock children on Just the Ten of Us. Then a couple of the other actresses ended up being in other Nightmare on Elm Street movies over the years. But then something that I was just reminded of today is that the kid that played the preteen teen boy that was sort of caught in the middle of a bunch of storylines in Just the Ten of Us. He is now working behind the scenes and is a very well-known director and producer, and he might be the guy that directs the upcoming Fantastic Four movie. Okay. Yeah, he directed WandaVision and stuff, and so he's, you know, pretty cool. Matt Shackman, I believe, is his name. So Just the Ten of Us is fantastic. We will definitely watch it because at some point, the four teen girls start a girl group called the Lubbock Girls. Oh, and so, no. Yes, there's lots of 60s covers that they sing, oh, well, lip sync at some bad bars. I love that show so much. <laughs> anyway, for the week, Baywatch ranked 64th overall out of around 90 shows. So in the middle a little bit, but not doing so hot. And like I said, this will be the final season on network television. Now, on to our Baywatch basics for this episode. The first season, again, being on network TV, it seems to be aimed at a very different audience than the syndicated version that we're mostly familiar with. There's actually, in this episode, there's very little skin to be seen of men or women, and I didn't see any fake breasts anywhere. No. Uh, and unfortunately, this week... We'll get into that. Okay. Well, no, go ahead. I was going to say, unfortunately, uh, this week, there isn't really a typical sud watch. There was only a few extras and, like, no shirtless hunks. Least... So 
it's going to be kind of like a consolation, so the watch. <laughs> yeah, true. There, there, it's it's a man worth looking at, but, yeah. but outside of what we like our rules to be yeah. for stud watch, but it's okay. Again, it, it, they were trying to appeal to a more diverse audience, you would say, in some ways. Everybody is as white as the driven snow, but, well, other than Garner, of course, but there's different types of people. There's older people. There's a like more of a focus on Hobie, at least for a moment. So our cast this week, though, Mitch Buchanan is here with his son, Hobie Wan. Hobie Wan. Hobie Wan, who will eventually go on to star as JT on... Uh, Step by Step. Yes, Danny's favorite. Oh my God, it's the rat boy. <laughs> Mother, this cretin put a dead rat in my locker. The rat was alive when I put him in there. Your gym socks must have killed him. Following up that, Garner Ellerby, as we mentioned, our only non-white cast <laughs> member this episode, our favorite beach cop. We have lawyer lifeguard Craig, as always, Parker Stevenson, and his prickly wife, Gina Two. Because Gina One was only in the pilot movie. Exactly, which we have watched yes. together <laughs> offline. Now, just as a quick aside, Parker Stevenson, I don't know if I had mentioned this before, our lawyer lifeguard, he actually appeared in the film that inspired Baywatch. It's called Lifeguard, and it was from 1976. And I have it on the DVR in there. What? Yes, so the two of us and Glenn will be watching every moment of it, not just for the podcast, but it actually stars Sam Elliott back in the 70s. Do you know who Sam Elliott is? Hold on, Sam Elliott. Um, I know who this is. All right, you would recognize him as soon as you saw him because he's I'll just say he's got a very large mustache. Does that help? No. Grace and Frankie. Oh, yes. Uh, he was in uh, Law & Order, right? I, that I don't know, but I know mostly from his cowboy roles. But in Oh, wait, no, no. I'm sorry. You're right. Thinking of someone else completely. Yes, Sam Elliott. Uh, I do know who you're talking about. He was in The Big Lebowski. Yes. Yes. And so in Grace and Frankie, he plays Phil, a lost love of Grace's that she reconnects with. He was in 1883 as a grizzled cowboy. What everyone is used to seeing him now is a shock of white hair and a very large white mustache. But and a deep voice. A very deep voice. And Glenn's not into older guys, but he's willing to drop panty for this gentleman. And watching just the little bits of Lifeguard, oh my goodness, he's a hunky man. So if you uh, want to get a little peek at uh, Mr. Sam Elliott, uh, he was uh, starring in the uh, Netflix show The Ranch with Ashton Kutcher. And there is a couple scenes where uh, you see him in some tidy whities My goodness, we're yes. going to have a whole Sam Elliott retrospective, I think. <laughs> Glenn, Glenn will just be over the moon. Back to Baywatch, uh, we have Eddie Kramer, Billy Warlock, who was by far my favorite at the time. We have Shawnee McLean, played by Erica Laniac, and her eyebrow. <laughs> I would say eyebrows. Oh my God, this episode. Well, well yes. It, there's some moments to talk about it. Followed up by Jill Riley, who's played by Sean Weatherly. No spoilers. But she yeah. only lasted a season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now we're getting into some people we're really unfamiliar with. Sid Wilson who's played by Michael McManus. He was a character actor from a million things. You would probably recognize him more so from his other roles. But did you even notice Sid in this episode? Uh, who was he? Exactly. Well, I'll bring him up when he comes on. Next, we have Captain Don Thorpe, played by Monty Markham. Who I will always refer to as Clayton. Clayton. And where is he from? Clayton is a hobo. Blanche's gay brother and the Golden Girls. Exactly. And I will probably refer to him as Blanche's brother almost exclusively. But I'm trying <laughs> Captain Don. Captain Don. And finally, we have our first Aussie Baywatch cast member in the form of Trevor Cole, played by Peter Phelps. I never really liked him personally. And this episode doesn't really do much to improve on that. He is a lifeguard, though? 
Yes. Oh, okay. You might remember from the pilot, you probably don't. He didn't actually work for Baywatch, at least at that time. He worked as a lifeguard at some sort of beach resort nearby. Mm. And so he clashed with the other lifeguards because he was more loosey-goosey and they're by the books and nah. We are firmly in season one though, so we have the original lame theme song. So boring. Very boring, and it feels very network, especially of the time, but it didn't inspire any excitement in me. But the storm raging outside is working to change that. Now there's a reporter on the television giving us a play-by-play of what's happening. The storm came ashore just north of San Clemente early this morning and has beach communities in Los Angeles County preparing for what could be the worst we've seen in eight years. And this guy is noteworthy because his name is Larry Carroll, and He's been in a million TV shows and movies, always playing the newscaster. <laughs> For instance, he was in the Spider-Woman cartoon, Beyond Westworld, which was actually the first Westworld TV show way back when, Heart to Heart, which is a current favorite of mine. That's the uh, couple detective? Yes. The, okay. Yes, the rich couple that they, yeah, they solve murders all the time. The A-Team, Okay. Hunter, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Major Dad, Murder, She Wrote, Volcano, Sister, Sister, The West Wing, and Greg the Bunny. Wait, he was a reporter in all of those. He's either a reporter, a newscaster, or something affiliated with that. Talk about being typecasted. I do believe he may have actually been a newscaster otherwise, but hell, you find work, you keep doing it. So, And he is quite convincing in his role, telling us about the storm that is currently hitting Southern California. These pictures are a graphic reminder of the millions of dollars of damage done when that storm caught the Southland off guard. This time, authorities are busy evacuating people from Hermosa Beach all the way north to Malibu. And he mentions that particularly one of the areas hit was San Clemente, which dinged for me. My mom and dad actually lived and got divorced there many <laughs> years ago. It's a, uh, at least when I was there, it's very pretty, very boring. But there's a lot of money all around uh, that area. And it is on the coast. So a storm could be bad news for that area. Was this before she met your dad? How would they have gotten divorced if they had not met? Oh, I thought this was like a... I didn't know this was your dad. I thought it was uh, a relationship before or after. No, 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 no. Yes, no, no. Whatever you want to call a relationship dissolved uh, (laughs) in San Clemente. So perhaps it was the beautiful landscape that gave them plenty of time to consider, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) But enough about that (laughs) lovely marriage. And let's talk about another one because we have lawyer lifeguard Craig and his not-so-happy wife, Gina Too. They're in the midst of breakfast. Well, she's making a nice meaty breakfast for them. In the ugliest kitchen I've ever seen, Denny. They have an interesting, want to say loft? You would say loft just because there's so much open space, but it's basically like they have a huge section of a warehouse. It's one of those goofy late 80s, early 90s warehouse apartments that you would see in My Two Dads or something like that. You're like, why the hell do you have a giant shoe in your living room? Now, the house he lived in in the movie was like this really nice, like, I want to say like modern. Yes, it was very contemporary for the time. It was very hip. Yes but in a classy, sophisticated way. He is a lawyer, so he does make some money. 
We would hope so. Yeah. And we see a lot of tension, at least in... We've, we've watched a previous episode that we recorded that didn't turn out so hot, and we learned more that there's a lot of tension between those two careers, that he's a lawyer by training and trade, but he his passion is with lifeguarding, and one pays the bills and the other keeps him happy, and trying to balance the two is... None of that comes up in this episode, really, though. But one thing to note... Eddie is living with them at this point, right? Yes, okay. Eddie is. But I want to talk more about their terrible living arrangement while we're there. Okay. So, Because we're in this kitchen. And again, it is the ugliest kitchen I've ever seen. There is contact paper or a faux marble finish on everything. Every cabinet face... There is a marble texture. The television even has this strange marble texture over it. There are... Oh, it's terrible. <laughs> I, I can't get over it. it the, the pattern continues on this half wall that the, that the phone is hung on. Oh, it's terrible. It's just hideous. No wonder they're always so surly. Now, I like how you focus on that. I was focusing on him describing his client who is... A, writing up a will because he's afraid his wife is trying to kill him for his money by oversalting his food. The way that he got this client, uh, lawyer lifeguard Craig, got this client, he had just gotten off the phone with his mother. His mother apparently is hustling for jobs for him. And yeah, she has found this potential client for him that <laughs> is in this strange situation. So I focus on this because if in modern shows and movies, like this would probably be a hint or um, a foreshadowing. This does not come up again. So I, I focused on this for nothing. <laughs> if anything, it was just showing us that he's still got a foot in the lawyer world, that his mother is involved in his life, and that's the long and short of it. Because it really just leads to another argument between these two. From what we've seen, they don't have the most friendly relationship, despite being husband and wife. They, they clash quite a bit. And this particular argument over her giant pile of bacon is that Gina, too, doesn't want to go and spend time with his family. Because that's what's coming up next. They're going to go visit Craig's family for whatever reason. You know, we could go someplace else. See your parents another time. She would rather go do something with just the two of them. That, which sounds nice in and of itself. But this all opens up. Lawyer lifeguard Craig is very type A. He is a controlled individual. He likes things to go a certain way. Plans everything out. This is clearly a point of contention with them often. Enough to where uh, Craig just storms out. <laughs> just once, I would love to see you do something that wasn't all planned out. Do something spontaneous. Oh, you want to see something spontaneous? Yeah. Watch this. He proves, well, hell, I can be impulsive too. And yes, storms out in the middle of a storm. <laughs> now across Southern California, Cloud formations like the type from Ghostbusters swirl overhead. <laughs> I, I guess Zool is in town visiting. And we now see Garner, along with some other cops, they're rounding up the local homeless in an effort to get them to safety during the downpour. Somehow, though, Mitch is able to reach Garner, even though Garner is off-site. He's away from everybody. And maybe the Baywatch headquarters and the police share certain radio bands. Probably. For emergency purposes. And as always, Mitch is busting Garner's balls. Okay, uh, Garner, listen, uh, try and keep your feet dry. I wouldn't want you catching a cold. 
which is quite bad in this situation because Garner is out trying to save people in the middle of the storm and Mitch is in a very sunny <laughs> Baywatch headquarters office. Like, the two shots don't match up at all. The sun is pouring in at Baywatch headquarters. Meanwhile, it is dark as hell wherever Garner is. Well, I think Garner's not too far because he's by the pier because that's where he goes to check next. Exactly. So And, we know, and as we know, that pier is right next to Baywatch <laughs> headquarters for most of the time. And based on the TV movie, we do know homeless people like to live under there. Well, anybody that's been to P-Town also knows there's all sorts of activity (laughs) happening under piers. You never know what you might find when you go down there. But yes, Garner is going to finish up his patrol by going under the pier and trying to just collect anybody else that might be straggling behind. Now, once he gets under the pier, there is trash and refuse and cardboard everywhere. So either there's a lot of homeless activity or there's a breakdancing club <laughs> that spends their time down here. Now, Garner is looking for just anyone he can find. He can't see anyone, but he does hear whispers, so he knows that there must be people around. He's there with flashlight in hand, in the dark, looking around, and suddenly he sees someone scurry behind one of the pylons. Oh! Anybody down here? We got a storm coming in! Well, what the hell's going on here? Garner calls for him to come out when all of a sudden this little weasel with a shitty mustache and a gap in his front teeth jumps out and takes two shots right at Garner, one of them connecting somewhere on his person. I figured it was like the shoulder. His shoulder is upper chest. Obviously, as we'll see, it's nowhere vital, but it's enough to knock Garner to the ground face down in the water. Yes. And there was something about this guy which... You find out later what it is, but there's something on his uh, right cheek. The entire time. And it bothered me because I didn't know what it was. Well, we won't find that out until a couple scenes later. (laughs) And nothing really happens with it. But like you say, this is Frank, a criminal. And he is played by a man named, I'm going to mispronounce this last name, Neil Gintoli? I want to say Gintoli. And the only reason I particularly call this out is because... He plays Chucky's partner in crime from the first Child's Play movie. Oh, really? Yes. So before Chucky puts his soul into the body of a doll, his partner in crime is this guy. Which, as we'll see throughout here, he plays a really good dirtbag. Super paranoid, though. Yes. He, he's definitely a hothead. Like, I refer to him in my notes the whole time as the paranoid guy. I refer to him as the weasel. So, you know, at least we have titles for him. Beyond his shortness and his cheesy high school freshman mustache, like you say, he's got a strange blob of red on one of his cheeks. It'll persist throughout the episode. After Garner falls, Frank's partner, who we come to find out is named Dick, jumps out of the shadows and asks him, what the hell are you doing? We're supposed to be hiding, not getting involved with the police here. Jerk, you had to go and kill a cop. This guy is played by Sherman Howard. One of the things that is kind of cool about this first season versus the some of the other episodes we've watched later on is that almost all of the guest stars are well-known character actors that have done a lot. So this guy was played, like I said, by Sherman Howard, and he most notably played Zombie Bub in A Day of the Dead. Zombie Bub. Bub, yes. And the reason that Bub is particularly notable is he is the zombie that they start to train... They're able to train to start to actually have some human characteristics. Uh, You don't like horror movies. I would never show it to you. The opening scene in particular is terrifying of that movie, but there is a really cool Florida overhead that probably is worth watching. I mean, who doesn't like zombies with alligators? So (laughs) anyway, um, Dick, he runs out of the shadows. He admonishes his hothead partner for shooting the cop, 
And here we find out these are partners. They're here up to something and they're on the run. And they continue being on the run because they leave Garner passed out and make their exit. I think he's dead, pretty much. Leave him for dead. Better that he's dead than <laughs> something happens. But anyway, the squall allows for many random shots of completely generic storm footage, which we're going to see a lot of in this episode between each and every scene. None of it really matches the setting or the part of the story that we're in other than, okay, I guess they have palm trees in both locations. We're now at Mitch's house, which seems to be in quite a state of disrepair. He's having some renovations done, I guess. There's a contractor in stained white overalls, relaxing on the sofa, though, feet kicked up and watching a Spanish novella. I thought it was, uh, oh, you know, that's later. Sorry, there was a, a Dracula later in the episode, but yes, it was a Spanish novella. Yes, he was. he's enjoying his stories when the phone rings. And who is it? It's Mitch asking for an update. Listen, is my roof going to be all right through this storm? What roof? <laughs> hey, there's a big storm rolling in. This contractor is actually replacing Mitch's roof, which is wide open to nature. And doesn't look like anyone's working. Not only are they not working, there is debris constantly <laughs> follow, falling on this contractor's face. But he, he shoves it off. He lets Mitch know, no, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about a thing, which is when water starts pouring into the guy's face from the exposed roof. And he gets Mitch off the phone, but his worry does not subside at all. There's no time, though, to think about his house because there is work to be done. He is at the office. Mitch fixes up himself up in a Baywatch branded raincoat, which I don't remember seeing before. And quite frankly, as we've said before, though, this is Southern California. People are wearing a lot of layers for the middle of the day, and especially in a storm. The storms here are not cool. <laughs> They're, if anything, <laughs> even sweatier, but maybe things are different in the world of Baywatch. Well, I think the Pacific Ocean, the water's colder, so maybe the rain there is a little bit more chilly. It's also December, you know, putting that in context, so maybe, you know, maybe it is chilly. It does get chilly well, here, too. If it's a hurricane that, for hurricane season, ends in November... They never specify that it's actually a hurricane. True. While, while they do plan to have a hurricane party, that's more of just a title, so... It, we never learn all that many specifics about the storm one way or the other, other than it's bad. As Mitch is putting his raincoat on and making his way out to go on patrol, he hears some strange, I guess, rehearsing from another room. And slightly smaller waves up from Santa Monica and Little Rogers Beach. But uh, checking Zuma and Broad Beach, the surf is expected to be in the four to six foot range. So wax down your sticks and pack up your woodies. And this is Captain Don Thorpe. Uh, this is Captain Don Thorpe speaking for the KBLA's Surf uh, port. <clears throat> and this turns out to be Captain Don. Clayton. Clayton. Clayton Devereaux, I guess, <laughs> would be his name. Practicing some sort of, it seems like a radio speech uh, in the mirror. Yes, he's got his hand on his ear and a nice hairbrush playing microphone. He, he's doing what we've all done before, pretending we're doing a radio spot. And Mitch is interrupting him, and he's a little embarrassed, which anybody would be. It turns out that Captain Don is going to go try out for a spot on KBLA. KBLA 1500 California Radio. It's a local AM talk radio station out of Santa Monica. And I tried to do a little bit of research about this. I love radio. I love researching. And from what I could tell, KBLA in 1989 was still called K. D-A-Y. K-Day. 50,000 watts. <laughs> AM stereo. K-D-A-Y. Santa Monica. Los Angeles. And it was actually the first station in L.A. to play hip-hop. Hmm. 
which kind of put it on the map. I mean, hell, it's 1989. People are still listening to AM radio for things other than sports and talk. It's a whole different world back then. What I question, though, is, is he, like, looking for another job? Like, does he not want to do his captain duties anymore? Or, like, what's going on? That's a good point. What we do see often, though, most of the lifeguards are always looking for other careers. <laughs> uh, we've seen people try to be stunt women. We've seen people interested in all manner of things. Waitressing, you know, doing other things. Maybe he just needs the extra money. Maybe it really doesn't pay that well. They put all the money into Mitch. <laughs> Who knows? And even though here Captain Don is embarrassed, he thought he had the station to himself. He was pr fairly certain that he was in an empty building. And he takes the chance, though, to ask Mitch for some feedback. How did it sound? How did it, gr how did it go? And Mitch, he's no dummy, so he just shovels on some compliments, even though he really couldn't have heard that much, and I'm sure he doesn't care. Super. Great. I mean, what exactly were you doing? They don't get along uh, very much, very well, do they? It seems like Captain Don doesn't really get along with anybody. From our limited experience with Captain Don in season one, what I'm going to posit is that he is the authority figure. And so we're supposed to assume that, oh, authority is bad. We're always going to have some sort of interaction with him. But like Trevor finds out later, Captain Don has layers that are not immediately apparent. He's like an onion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's very smelly. <laughs> Mitch humors Captain Don long enough for lawyer lifeguard Craig to enter the scene. And Craig's mood has not improved at all after storming out of the apartment. And he decides to tag along with Mitch, who's about to go on his final patrol for the day. Finally doing some work. Exactly. They, they're they're going to try to round up some more people before the storm really rolls in. And it's here we're graced with even more stock footage <laughs> of random weather, while Garner remains face down in the water and shot, where he groans before we fade back to Mitch and lawyer lifeguard Craig. They're driving down the beach in a Baywatch truck in manly silence before Mitch breaks it, who, because you can tell the air is thick with more than just the weather, and he starts prodding with his usual armchair psychology. You want to tell me about it? I guess he's been watching a lot of Donahue or Oprah, as Craig intimates. And Craig's in no mood to get into it. He just had to argue with his wife. He left the damn house so he didn't have to talk about it. He's just here for some Baywatch action. But I think he does eventually relent and just starts to say, Gina thinks I'm too rigid and all that sort of stuff. And Mitch is like, well, yeah, you are. <laughs> like, full on, like... Yeah, he goes into a whole litany of things that illustrate that he's a very controlled person. None of it's negative, but it is the truth. Oh, come on now. You always take sausage and mushrooms on your pizza. You always leave the Dodger game after one out of the eighth. You get your hair cut every three weeks. And I bet, I bet you lay your clothes out every night before you go to bed. And Mitch seems to know a lot about his life because he like lists things that like it's a little odd mitch somehow knows everything about everyone <laughs> which when you think about it it makes a lot more sense that his relationship with his son is as distant as it is because he's <laughs> too busy with all of these other people in their, their lives regardless they are going to investigate the public restrooms their destination for the day who knows what you might find just like under a pier a public restroom <laughs> could yield all sorts of interesting results. But it's a good thing that they checked here. There's three guys huddled trying to get shelter from the storm here in the bathroom. And one of them is very familiar with the lifeguards. They even know him, this guy Henry. It's about time you guys got here. Older homeless guy, he seems polite enough. And uh, he's interested in the help that they're providing. Oh, 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 you boys are too good to me. Sure hope you got something to eat back there. And uh, But who else is in the bathroom with him? Those two other guys huddled on the ground it turns out to be Frank and Dick, the criminals from earlier under the pier that had shot Garner. They're all loaded onto the truck, and they head to Baywatch HQ for safer shelter. 
back of their place, the worst apartment in California. <laughs> Gina, too, is washing some dishes, and their awful warehouse apartment gets more and more 80s. The front entrance this time, which we're able to see in glory, is a door to the elevator in classic urban fashion. It even has a cage inside between the door and the elevator illustrating, ooh, how cool and hip are these people. There are two giant fish tanks on either side of the door held up by slabs of purple something. <laughs> I don't know. It's so terrible. And we get another angle of the kitchen this time because Gina too is doing some dishes. It reveals the use of copious amounts of glass block backlit as the backsplash for their sink area. It's, it's, it's so awful. So as a design grade, what would you give this? It's not entirely fair for my 21st century lens to look back on this, so I can't really state what it was like in 1989. Maybe this was cutting edge. Maybe this was super hip. All I can say is that cheap-ass countertop, the shitty top-mounted metal sink, it's all half-assed. I mean, I, I hate it. This, I think it would be a cool space just with, like, different furniture. <laughs> We'll get into the furniture, too, actually, now that you mention it. But anyway, for now, Eddie and Shawnee and her eyebrow have shown <laughs> up with sacks of groceries. They are all going to make the best of a bad day, and it turns out they're going to throw a hurricane party during the downpour. You know, this is kind of a neat idea. Never been to a hurricane party before. You've been a Floridian your whole life. I've lived on the coast, East Coast, most of my life. Hurricane parties are like second nature. Yeah, I've never really been to one, but, like, I know people have them. How the hell did you miss out on hurricane parties? That involves, like, going to people's houses and, like, spending time with them. And potentially being trapped with them yes. in the dark. I can see where you might not like it. <laughs> okay, it's not for everybody, but this crew, they're ready to go. In fact, they don't just have groceries. They also picked up some tapes from the video store. And Eddie's movie picks reveal him to have very questionable tastes. You're going to love these movies. Classics. The Three Stooges. Laurel and Hardy, Tweety and Sylvester. What? I love Tweety and Sylvester. It was so weird. It was so weird. It it felt very generic. Like, if you wanted to illustrate that a person was not the most deep or perhaps very sophisticated in their in their taste, these are the sorts of things that every time a man would choose as tapes. But, like, it's weird, too, because they have portrayed Eddie as being, like, a deep and, like, introspective person. But not sophisticated or too intelligent is maybe one I want to say. He's not a dummy, but he's he's no art, artsy type. So what does he have? Three different tapes. The Three Stooges, which by the way, this has to be a compilation because their films, I think they only did one or two, are horrible. Uh, Laurel and Hardy. I wish I even know about. <laughs> and Tweety and Sylvester, which is probably the only one I'd be interested in seeing. Though I like the Stooges, but they're shorts. But the girls aren't all that happy about these choices. They don't ever watch these tapes, so it doesn't matter. Eddie happens to be wearing the same shirt, only as a Henley style, as the guy from Blue's Clues. And Shawnee, and her eyebrow, she's she has this overly embellished jean jacket. It's got a couple jewels on it. It's acid washed. And that it also has other fabric panels on the top. It actually doesn't look super terrible, but it is... Very much of the time. Yes. They, 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 they jumped right out of VH1. <laughs> now, interestingly, since they were out in the rain, her hair, which is normally like a curly sort of thing, uh, it's more limp this time. And she's lucky because, well, she or we are lucky because there's a particular limp tendril. I really love her hair when it's all wild, you know? But it's also very pretty when it's all up with that in the bang area that happens to obscure her unibrow for the entire scene. 
but there's others where, where unfortunately we are not so lucky to be obscured. You can't leash something like that for <laughs> too long. Now, Eddie makes the mistake of asking where lawyer lifeguard Craig has popped off to, which opens the door for Gina, too, to do a classic overshare of their relationship problems with some people that are clearly uninterested. You know the dumb part? We really weren't fighting about anything. You don't have to go on, Gina. No, it's no big deal. One day when you're married, you'll understand that every so often you have to have an argument. It's like a requirement. She takes this opportunity, though, make her own exit because she's going to go find her husband. I think she realized that maybe she overreacted a little bit. And so, you know, she's giving herself advice as she's telling this the story to Eddie and Shawnee. In fact, Eddie and Shawnee are only there as sounding boards. Yeah. Her. They may as well be talking to the ugly sink. <laughs> Business continues as usual at Baywatch headquarters. Mitch has arrived with the three stragglers including Frank and Dick. And he sends Jill to tend to the always there wound that happens to be on Frank's face. This blob of whatever. Which we found out it is a cut, which... Of you some know, kind. Back when this probably aired, you know, TVs were probably not as clear and sharp, so, like, you can't tell what it was. No, no. If anything, it could have been a birthmark. That's what I was thinking at first. Yeah, and in fact, it, it serves no purpose, but we'll, we'll get to a little bit more. Meanwhile, Sid, he shows up finally... You may or may not have noticed, he was the guy that looks like a cartoon turtle. Okay, yes. Yes, uh, older guy. And this is his one and only line of the entire episode. He gives Mitch the information that Hobie One has been calling and that he needs to call home. And he just pretty much just hangs out in the back of the rest of the scenes he's in. Yeah, you see him, but he does nothing. <laughs> so I hope that he gets something to do across the season. Or Well, at least I hope he got a good paycheck. Or I had fun. Or at least something happened well for him. Anyway... Back at Mitch's place, Hobie One is running around with every pot he can find in classic TV fashion, trying to keep as much water off the floor as possible because the contractors have clearly not finished the roof. And he got sent home from school early because of the storm. Which is what he was calling Mitch to let him know. Is that, hey, I'm home early, but also there's some bad news. One of the contractors, in their haste to finish, actually fell off the roof and now they have to take him to the hospital. But that also means that the roof will remain unfinished, at least for now, in the middle of the storm. Now, while Hobie One is talking to his dad on the phone, some girl is just wandering around. A, a preteen girl, uh, around the same age as Hobie, she's wandering around now with pots of her own, trying to catch the rain. Now, I want to stop and, like, wonder, because we, we saw the roof before, like, there was a giant massive hole. And so I would have to imagine that the contractors did some work to close it mostly because only little droplets are falling through what in I'm, various areas. Yeah, what I'm assuming is that they put up, a, like, a temporary tarp, okay. and that tarp was not secured the best, and it's leading to leaks here or there, okay. <laughs> the kind of which that you have to really monitor. And it's it's good that Hobie One has a friend here. This friend turns out to be Alex. We really don't learn much of anything about her in this episode, but who the heck cares about Alex? Did you recognize this young lady? I did not. That's funny. She was played by none other than Jenny Lewis. Jenny Lewis, she appeared in a million things back then, including the 80s Twilight Zone, Webster, Life with Lucy, The Golden Girls, Mr. Belvedere. Golden Girls, hold on. Yes. She was the little girl yes. who stole Rose's uh, stuffed animal. Yes. And wouldn't give it back. Yes. All <laughs> right. You may also recognize she was in Growing Pains. She was in an episode of Just the Ten of Us that we went on about, well, I went on about at length. She was in an episode of Roseanne. She was in an episode of Murder, She Wrote. But in films, this is where you will definitely know her. She was the main girl, the lead daughter in True Beverly Hills. 
Yes. But most importantly, she was the co-lead of The Wizard with Fred Savage. Oh, okay. Yeah, she played the sassy girl that they met. Later on, uh, she became the lead of the band Rilo Kylie, who you wouldn't recognize if you heard some of their music. And what's cool about that band is not just that Jenny Lewis is in it, because Jenny Lewis is pretty damn cool, but also the band features one of the cute boys from Salute Your Shorts, who later on was one of the bullies on Boy Meets World, Blake Sennett you would absolutely recognize if you saw him. I'd have to see a picture. Wait, who were we talking about before? What character? He played one of the two bullies in Boy Meets World when they went to high school, and he played the kid that replaced Michael, the curly-haired, blonde, cute boy from the first season. Yes. He was like a sassy, like sarcastic guy in the second season. Who was he in, the sh in uh, Baywatch? He wasn't in Baywatch. He's in Rilo Kylie with Jenny Lewis. Oh. That's why I <laughs> All right, all right, all right. But yes, I know who you're talking about. I want to say his character's name in Chalutin Shorts was Pinsky. I think you're right. His last name. They only called him by his last name. I think you're right. Now I have to know. We're <laughs> so much for getting through this episode. Yes, he played Pinsky. Yes. Good memory, Denny. Well, yeah. How cute he was. Mm -hmm. Floppy hair. Anyway, <laughs> back to Baywatch. There's some awkward tween flirting between Hobie One and this Alex, and we quickly and thankfully leave this scene <laughs> because it's all just kind of strange. But Alex towers over Hobie One in every scene that they're in together. It's it's she's like a head taller than him. Absolutely. Now I know girls are supposed to mature faster, but this discrepancy is is very large. I mean, as a short person growing up, even like the, most of my classmates, like. This was common for me. Mm, I am also of the shorter variety, and I was always of the shorter variety. Maybe I'm just choosing to not remember <laughs> in that way. Now, as the rain falls in sheets outside of Baywatch headquarters, Jill is busy giving that first aid to the weasel Frank that had earlier shot Garner. And I don't think she's much of a medic, though, because that red blob, she sort of just smears around. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't. she doesn't seem to actually apply much first aid. This scene makes... He's making her really uncomfortable. Like, he's kind of flirting with her, and she's just, like, not feeling it. She's just trying to be nice. I never knew they made such pretty ones. She, yeah, she's doing an admirable job of being like, okay, great, thanks. But his creep factor is high. You would have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to notice <laughs> that there's something weird with this young man. Her spidey sense was tingling. Something's not right. Exactly. Now we go back to Garner. Poor Garner. But he finally awakens. Uh, who knows how long he's been face down in the water, but he now has enough strength to struggle to his, well, at least struggle to his knees before falling now onto his back, passing out yet again. It, at least he won't drown this time. At least on water. <laughs> now he wheezes, he starts to black out once more, and we join him in that inky void as we fade to commercial. Two weeks ago, a friend of mine to recite to get fresh rhyme with cut out rhymes so full of tricks they all derive from 976 976 7070 is to get fresh line that's full of soul 976 7070 976 7070 word them up homie that's what I said I called the other party lines and they were dead there was nothing jumping off nothing could pass my test so I let my fingers do the walking in I got fresh so you're looking for me I'm gonna let you know down 976 7070 976 7070 
9767070. It's the Get First Line Live in LA. People, plenty of people with plenty to say. Oh, it's something. Have no, it's something going on. Call it in the evening or at the breakup. Don't. Everybody who's anybody's on this line. This is the first part of the line you'll ever find. If you want a good time, we've got many. It's only $2 plus toll, if any. So at Lifeguard HQ, Frank and Dick are arguing. Frank does not want to be there because, you know, he's all paranoid. He thinks that everyone knows who they are. They're going to get caught. And Dick is just trying to calm him down, saying, you know, it's a storm out there. They're just lifeguards. Their relationship is very clear at this point. Itty bitty Frank is a pistol. He is fire. He is constantly ready to react. And he sees everything with suspicion. Meanwhile, Dick, larger, much larger, balding, older. He's the calm one. He's the one trying to keep a lid on his partner at all times. I kind of wonder like how they got together to begin with. For some reason, I thought they were brothers at first, and I had that throughout my notes until I got to the end and I read back and I'm like, they never said they were brothers. All we ever learn is that they are criminals that had both been in the same prison. Dick is fine with sitting still and waiting out the weather, but like we said, Frank is the paranoid type and he chews away at his nails throughout this conversation, something we don't see again, but again, a good indication this is a nervous wreck and he suspects that the lifeguards may know something is up. How he thinks this? Paranoia only. No one has given any indication that they think anything is wrong with them except Jill not being interested in his lame compliments. <laughs> yeah. Dick's able to calm him down, at least for now. All we gotta do is play it cool. Okay? And they go and rejoin the others. Back at Mitch's place, Hobie One and Alex continue their uncomfortable, pubescent flirting as water fills the buckets and pots all around them. I feel gross saying it, but like, I don't want to say sexual tension, but like, you know, that whole like puppy love type thing you can see is like happening between them. And it seems like Alex is more of the aggressor. And this water falling gives lots of opportunity to, oh, I want to avoid the splash, to be suspiciously close to one another. And yeah, it is weird at our age to be commenting on 12-year-olds and their <laughs> romantic entanglements, but that's clearly what's going on here. This scene is to put them together, to draw them together. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's just weird. Who wants to watch kids do anything, let alone be lovey-dovey? The discomfort, though, is shared not just by us as the audience, but also these two kids. They're inexperienced completely, and they're also interested in one another. And so they both try to make excuses of what to do with their time other than uncomfortably sit next to one another. So Hobie says that he's going to check out the doors and windows to make sure that the house is secure. Maybe they're not in a very good neighborhood. I mean, who the hell's out in the middle of a storm? Even the criminals that we've seen have taken shelter. Well, I, I got to say... When I was a kid and I stayed home alone and there was a storm, like, I was terrified. I did check and make sure every door was locked. And I remember one time the power went out and, like, it was just constant lightning. And I took my two dogs in the living room and huddled in the middle of the living room, shaking because I was so scared I wouldn't let my dogs go. That's a really good point. I, I'm, I'm taking away their humanity and yeah. their youth from them. Maybe it's the right thing to do to check. And, heck, you know... Better safe than sorry. But Alex has a much stranger suggestion. I, I think maybe I'll go in the kitchen and make some coffee. Coffee? She's going to go make them coffee. <laughs> 
They're, they're 12. I, mean, I forgot about that. I'm in my 40s, and I still don't like coffee. I can't imagine some tweens doing it. I didn't think they got into coffee until Starbucks got big, but heck, Hobie seems interested. Great. On a day like this, there's nothing like a good, strong cup of coffee. So we go back to Lifeguard HQ, where we find Parker in the shower. Parker? Um, sorry, uh, Craig Laurie Lifeguard. I always call him Parker. I don't know why, because that's his, his real name. Parker Stevenson. Yeah. Uh, he is annoyingly wearing his red shorts. Yeah. A it, shower. It's, it's, it's bizarre. I mean, it's, it's clearly just in the world of this television show that a person alone in a locker room would be showering in shorts. And what's even stranger, lawyer lifeguard Craig, he didn't work today. He didn't have a shift. Why is he in his red shorts? It's very <laughs> he weird. He just rode in the truck with Mitch. In his normal outfit. He didn't change into his Baywatch suit, but whatever. Well, this is where we're going to have our consolation subwatch. Our perfunctory at best. Yes, because unfortunately there was no other options because... The only extras in this entire episode were Henry the homeless guy, who, hey, if you're into older guys that are homeless, <laughs> maybe he's for you, and some police officers, and then the contractors in the background. Not a one of them showed any skin. Not a one of them could we really see their faces that were all that great. And in all honesty, the best-looking guy in this particular episode that's showing us the goods is Lawyer Lifeguard Craig. And he is a handsome man, beautiful eyes. Oh, he's a very good-looking guy. In fact, I just recently watched an episode of Murder, She Wrote, that he happened to guest star in. I did not know he was going to be in this episode, but he was so charming. Was he the murderer? Not at all. That's a surprise, because usually the guest star is the murderer. He helped Jessica solve the murder, actually, and he played drunk for a while. It's really cute. (laughs) So, anyway. So then we get some camera shots from someone observing him. It's kind of like that old horror movie style shooting where you're in the perspective of the person. Exactly. And it's supposed to be ominous. That's the language of horror movies. If we see a handheld camera and hell, it even like ducks behind one of the lockers when uh, Craig is about to notice them. Yes. And so, yeah, there is somebody sneaking up on him. And they grab a towel off the locker, creep up closer. And Craig turns around and he gets uh, smacked with the towel. Yes. It is Gina too. He has been towel whipped by his wife, who they agree that I thought we didn't do that anymore and make a strange reference to a trip to Argentina that they took once. And she takes the opportunity to do a not so PC accent at the same time. <laughs> oh, no, senor, we are not in Mazatlan anymore. But, uh, but yes, Gina too has shown up at Baywatch headquarters. They're there to make amends. They want to make up. Plus, I mean, surprising your partner in the shower, that's generally a good thing. Yeah, but Craig says that he is going to be more spontaneous from now on. So making this whole side story resolved. It's done. It's done. And wrapped up with a bow, which is nice because we have more tension to come. Yes, because now Gina is in a situation that could be potentially hostile later on because while we know there's criminals in the midst, no one else does at this point. And she's really the only civilian here now other than Henry the homeless guy and our two criminals. So I wonder what might happen. But wait, we're somewhere brand new. We're in the gaudy waiting room of a radio casting agent, I suppose, or maybe the radio station itself. The room is full of young hopefuls, script pages in hand, and it's all young, hip, white, white, white people, all dressed like they came off the set of Say by the Bell. <laughs> Each one is goofier looking than the last. And then we have Captain Don sticking out like a sore thumb. Excuse me, are you like bus driver or something a sore old thumb yes in his beige i guess 
captain's uniform. I don't. He's a lifeguard captain, right? Exactly. Yes, and it, yeah, he looks like a thumb. Actually, <laughs> now that you mention it, all one color because his skin tone unfortunately matches the khaki of his boring ass outfit. And he's seated next to a pretty charming stoner dude with a really bad ponytail and a giant electric guitar-shaped earring flopping about the whole time. <laughs> what looks to be a very sweaty man bursts in the room. Turns out that's not sweat. That's just from the rain. And this is our Australian Trevor. Trevor, he's here to try out for the voiceover gig too. Just like Captain Don. And it's here that we find out, oh, Trevor does work at Baywatch now because the notice came in that they were looking for some voiceover people. But Captain Don tried to keep it to himself. Yes, he was trying to be sneaky. Well, I didn't know any of the other guards were coming down to try out for this. Yeah, I noticed you didn't exactly spread the word when the station called headquarters asking for people. Yes, he was selfishly guarding that information for himself. And quite frankly, he's got a really nice voice. He does. I'll give him that. But um, I really kind of dig Australian accents, so I probably would have picked Trevor. Killer accent, man. (laughs) God save the queen, right, dude? Oh, at the time, especially. Late (laughs) 80s, early 90s. I mean, hell, even now, for some reason, you hear an Australian accent, and it's like, hmm. Interesting. I should need to pay attention, so. Was Crocodile Dundee a thing at this point? Yes. Okay, so, like, that whole Australian craze was at this point. Oh, yeah. Facts of Life have already gone down under. There's the two koala cartoons on Nickelodeon. It's, I know I was way into Australia at the time. The country followed suit. As we said, Trevor is here to try out for the voiceover gig, too, which I think I said already. Yes, you did. All right. But turns out that the storm has closed all the roads, so they're going to be stuck at this radio station one way or another, tryouts or not. This is when Trevor starts to jab at Captain Don. What are you doing here? He infers. Well, he doesn't even infer. He states it outright. You're too old to be here. Look around you. You're the one thing that doesn't (laughs) fit here. And it's pretty clear that Captain Don is the oldest, I mean, hell, he's older than any of the furniture in the room. And he seems a little distressed as Trevor points points this out. Not feeling so secure in getting this opportunity. Yeah, and just as a little bit of a side note about Blanche's brother here, he looks very odd. And I don't know, I don't want to comment ill of the dead. He passed away in recent years. And I do like him as an actor. I love him as Blanche's brother. But I, maybe the makeup is super thick or something. He just, he looks not great. But who cares? Because we get more storm footage ever increasing in intensity and we're back with garner still all alone under the pier still struggling to get up to his feet at this point but he is able to make his way to standing he rests against a pylon and he tries to radio for help hello come in anybody officer in trouble can you read me come in come in but there's no answer Either the salt water for the whole time he was face down has damaged the radio, or who knows. We don't find out because now we go back to Baywatch headquarters, and Frank the Weasel is sneaking up behind Jill now. He clearly has an eye for this young lady, and he starts going on and on after she notices that he's there about how impressed he is by the lifeguards, their setup, and in particular, their kitchen. Well, he sneaks up behind her and scares the shit out of her first. Oh, I'm sorry if I scared you. Rightfully so. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she's not expecting anyone to be there. She's just going about her duties, and she is startled. But at the same time, she's a professional. While she's startled, while she's surprised, she doesn't let on that much, which allows Frank to go on and on with these compliments. How much he loves the kitchen. I mean, then again, maybe he's been in prison in a long time, so he hasn't seen nice facilities. This is true. It confuses Jill, but she 
quickly makes an exit. She finds a reason to get the hell out of there, get away from this creepy guy, and she bumps into Dick <laughs> as she leaves. Dick's questioning Frank what, what he's doing, and of course, being as paranoid as he is, he thinks Jill suspects something. She suspects something, Dick. He is sure that Jill now knows that something is up with them. All Jill wants to do is get the hell away from you, sir, <laughs> but paranoia can cause all sorts of strange thoughts. Back at, again, the worst apartment in the world, the news report continues to give more bad news regarding the Tempest outside, and it's pumping out of this giant stereo system that Craig has. There's a window next to the stereo. Let's continue our critique of this <laughs> horrible abode. It has vertical blinds, which in and of themselves, eh, it's fine, but they have this blindingly ugly floral pattern printed across the whole thing. It's it's so terrible. <laughs> it's it's so it's so sad. Now Eddie reminds us that he's no California native. He's surprised that it's raining at all, let alone storming, when Shawnee has to remind him, well, you know, sometimes things are oversold. Don't believe everything you hear. That song was written by the Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, she's right. I had to stop and I really have to question the makeup artists at this point because how they let this slide, I will never understand. What? Shawnee's unibrow. It is, this is where we really get like a close up of it and like it's bad, bad. She's a beautiful woman. I don't oh, want to take that gorgeous. away from her. But her most distinctive characteristic is that unibrow. And sometimes, especially, I, I, you know, I've been immersing my stuff in this old television, old movies for years now, decades even. And one of the things that I have to adjust to is changing beauty standards. It's a really shocking thing sometimes to watch an older movie or television show and to say, look at people's teeth. You know, things have changed, you know. And I've started to notice that, yeah, unibrows were more prevalent before television and film got clearer, I'll say. <laughs> maybe it is a higher level of definition that reminded people, oh, maybe I don't want my eyebrows to be eyebrow. But it is striking. Let's be kind if but we can. I gotta say, um, it's not deterring Eddie because they have a little moment. <laughs> oh, yes. He changes the stereo from the bad news to some sexy-ish music and they start to do some flirting on opposite hideous ugly jaguar skin patterned love seats they start talking about their first kisses yeah and you don't do that with someone unless you are trying to get to the next kiss and what happens they, they kiss just a quick little peck though so quick that it shocks eddie as Shawnee immediately leaves the sofa and leaves the room. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't have been that long of a kiss to be bad enough to run away from, or, yeah. you know. But it was whiplash, for sure. Very much so. Now, in the background, I just want to point out, because, again, one of the reasons that we watch the standard definition German DVDs is so that we can get the original music that's playing in the scene and in this scene. I love the way you make me feel by Billy Hughes. I'm very unfamiliar with this song and I don't think I'll ever listen to it again, but just to make a note. I love the way you make me feel. It's all storm all the time, but back at Baywatch headquarters, Gina too is trying to drum up more guests for her hurricane party, which seems kind of odd. It, it, at least in, from my perspective, it seems a little late in the day to be inviting people to a party that how late could this party go into? Yeah, and it seems like a bad time to start moving while a storm is going on. Well, not just that. It's the worst part of the storm. Yeah, usually, you know, you get to a place before the storm happens, and then the party happens then. Ah, uh, it's Gina, too. She's not the most well thought out. Meanwhile, G 
Jill is checking the phone and is able to hear the faint voice of an operator on a very statically line, which is a brilliant reminder of the time. These people are using corded phones. They have got no internet to speak of and a cell phone. What the hell is that? (laughs) Now, before she's able to get out much information to the operator, other than I'm calling from Baywatch headquarters, she is violently grabbed from behind, which is quite the feat because it's Frank, itty bitty Frank, jumping up and holding her mouth. Well, let me go back a little bit. Jill has went off to check the switchboard, so it's not like she's in the same room with Gina anymore. Right. She's by herself. Right. Lawyer lifeguard Craig had earlier intimated, hey, there's something seems to be wrong with the phones, and she states that she's going to go check the switchboard, but she really just goes downstairs and checks another phone. Right. (laughs) Analog technology was different. Perhaps we are the ones talking out of our ass. But yes, while she's doing this, Frank has grabbed her and drags her out of the room. He's convinced that Jill was going to call the police when there's no indication of that to him. And as we know, she was just trying to make sure the phones even worked. She manages, though, to let out a scream in between his hand. Because she's clearly not that intimidated by him. But uh, this alerts everyone else in HQ that something, some sort of commotion is going on. So they all run to check up on her and they discover Frank is uh, manhandling her. So Parker gets him off of her. Who? Craig, lawyer lifeguard, sorry, gets him off of her, and that's when he pulls out a gun. Yes, and he brandishes this very aggressively. It is full point, full in people's faces, and now Dick comes along. (laughs) He's got his gun out, pointed firmly at the main cast. Gina, too, though, I can't let her get away. She's wearing a leather jacket that has... I mean, for one, the fit is bad. It's one of those puffy uh, leather jackets, but it's covered in hand-painted sections, shapes, and glyphs, I guess. <laughs> it looks like a Kmart version of Keith Haring, you know, the gay artist from way back when yes. that would do those those sort of simple <laughs> designs. Oh, Gina, too. But I may point a gun at you myself. The drama hits its highest pitch as we fade to our next commercial. Super Combo, Super Combo, try your favorite Campbell's Super Combo. Introducing Campbell's new frozen Super Combo varieties, just for the microwave. It's good food fast, like tomato soup with a grilled cheese sandwich, or cream of broccoli soup with a flaky ham and Swiss cheese croissant. Super Combo, Super Combo, try your favorite Campbell's Super Combo. Campbell's eight new Super Combo varieties, mm good food fast. That impressive kitchen at Baywatch headquarters is getting a little crowded as Frank and Dick herd all their new hostages in. There's Mitch, Sid, Jill, lawyer lifeguard Craig, Gina too, and even Henry, the homeless guy. (laughs) He didn't ask for any of this. He just wanted a sandwich. I sure hope you got something to eat back there. Now, this is when Dick and Frank begin to argue, as they sort of have been doing this entire time. They're very similar, actually, to Gina too and Craig, (laughs) as far as their relationship goes. Frank, though, he's clearly the unhinged one, not able to listen to reason. He's the one that even pushed the situation this far as it is. And hell, they're supposed to be on the run. Now they've got a room full of hostages in the middle of hurricane conditions. Now Mitch does his Mitch thing and attempts to talk down the situation. Excuse me. I just want to know what's going on here. Is this some sort of stick up or something? Of course. Well, you know, he's he's the boss, sort of. He's the star, (laughs) definitely. Not the boss yet, but will be later on. 
Captain Don's in the way for now, <laughs> but it doesn't work on Dick, though. He gives him a great lifeguard put down. Sand for brains. And uh, pushes him away. <laughs> There's one or two of those in this episode we'll have to keep in our back pockets. Frank looks even smaller, though, when he's standing next to the hulking, balding Dick. And they both demonstrate incredibly poor trigger dis- discipline. You're not supposed to have your finger on the trigger? Exactly. The Unless you're only- actually planning on using it? 100%. You don't do that. But these two, they're actors and they're criminals on the run. Their fingers are on those triggers the entire time. Anyone could be shot. Hell, Garner caught a bullet already. I like, though, in the scene where they ushered everyone to the break room, argue for a couple seconds, and then they usher everyone upstairs. It's just like, why not just... Maybe they wanted another tour of headquarters. I'm not sure. It was weird. It was very weird. But it does give lawyer lifeguard Craig and Mitch a little bit of time to conspire with one another to try to get in contact with Garner. They know what's up. They're lifeguards. They're capable of a lot. But this is a situation... We need the authorities. Someone with a gun. (laughs) Exactly. But before they can get that much further, yes, they're herded upstairs to the next room. We find Garner limping to a... I wouldn't say limping, but like... Struggling. Struggling, but he makes it to a lifeguard tower. Yes. But unfortunately, it's padlocked, so he has to get his gun and shoot the lock. Twice. To get it open. Yes, it's, it's funny. Like, it's a very secure building. Baywatch yeah. doesn't screw around, I guess, when it comes to these locks. But, you know, it's, it's a smart idea because, you know, there's going to be first aid tools so he can, you know, kind of patch up himself up, even though he has a bullet wound. Well, it is the first thing he does. He falls into the tower and he starts rifling through the tackle box first aid kit. And he grabs some gauze or something. And then, before actually using it at all, he grabs the radio receiver. Back at Baywatch headquarters, though, the assembled hostages are with their captors in the main space of headquarters, which just so happens to be surrounded by very large plate glass windows. Also, though, in this room is the switchboard, which just so happens to light up one light, which Mitch notices right away. Right away. And this, he thinks, might be an opportunity, but Dick also notices. Dick doesn't miss a trick. What the hell's that? He knows what's going on, that something is up, and so he drags Mitch over to the switchboard. Luckily, he doesn't play it on an overhead speaker or anything. Instead, he puts on a headset and speaking in... It's kind of code. Yeah, half-veiled code. It wasn't great, but he's communicating now with Garner. Cannon. Mitch, this is Garner. What are you doing out there? I need help. Somebody fired on me under the pier. You could be the only lifeguard crazy enough to work a tower today. Are they there? Yeah. They they get it across that, hey, we're in a bad situation, and Garner is able to warn them, hey, watch out for these guys. These are probably criminals that were from Terminal Island. Is that an actual place? Yes, it is. Oh. Terminal Island, it's a real-life, low-security prison in Long Beach, California. And of particular note, it's a male-only prison. It didn't used to be. For, for a long time, it was co-ed. Now it's male-only. And some of the inmates that have been there over the years, hopefully any of these no- names will be familiar to you. I'm sure others will recognize them. Al Capone. Okay. Henry Hill. The movie Goodfellas was okay. about Henry Hill. Timothy Leary. He's like the father of LSD and that whole part of the hippie movement. And Charles Manson. Okay. They were all inmates at one time at this prison. And that's where our Frank and Dick come from. Bad guys from a bad place. Now, back at that tower, Garner, who now looks like 
Jason from Friday the 13th or a possessed Gordon's fisherman. He stumbles out into the monsoon and into the night with a new sense of determination. He knows what he has to do. He's got to go save his friends. Exactly. Now, back at the worst apartment in the world, <laughs> Eddie is building a fire in a monstrous fireplace. Another piece of design drek. More blocks of marble only interspersed this time with large squares of a different marble pattern, now in purple. It's it's a travesty. Now, Shawnee, she's, I guess she left the room to change outfits. She has now put on a sweatsuit that belongs to Eddie. And he is digging it. Which is interesting. I mean, people have different interests. I can maybe understand if it was like more form-fitting, but like it's just like this weird baggy sweatsuit or sweat clothes. Perhaps it is just the notion that she's wearing his clothes that's starting to do it for him. You look really great in my sweat. He knows that things are sort of progressing. You know, uh, his excitement is understood. And they they wonder both together where everybody is. The phones are out, sure, but we were supposed to have a hurricane party. Where the hell's Gina too? Where's Craig? Where, where's anybody? They're going to have their own party. The world before cell phones. <laughs> uh, you never knew you were going to be interrupted, but you had to take advantage of those moments. Because the flirting, it's restarted now. I guess because she's more comfortable that now they can continue. And she offers to make him some food, which is very nice, especially considering she doesn't live there. <laughs> she doesn't know where anything is. But Eddie takes advantage and he's like, yeah, I'd love some grilled cheese and soup. Tomato soup. Ew, I can't. I hate tomato soup. I'm not a fan of that particular combination. I'm not that big a grilled cheese guy in the I first like place. I like grilled cheeses. But those two things together are very classic yes. bad weather foods. So it makes sense. None of it really matters, though, because I don't think they ever get to this soup. No, they do not. Instead, she asks Eddie to put some soft music on the radio, which he does. Again, more real music. True Love by Glenn Frey. Never heard of it before. Probably will never hear it again. And they approach each other in the kitchen now. Nothing's cooking, so <laughs> their, their physical hunger is yet to be dealt with. And they go in for another kiss, which just so happens to send us into our only montage of the episode. So I need clarification on this. So is this is kind of like Eddie's dream parts and then like later like peppered in with like actual time they spent together? I guess. Oh, since we haven't watched very much of season one at all, there's clearly scenes that are flashbacks, that are, are little segments of points that they've met and interacted in the previous 11 episodes. Sorry, previous 10 episodes. Not that, much, not that much show has happened yet, but that's a good point. The way that it starts is both of them are in white, standing together in the surf, and they're sort of canoodling and end up making out or whatever. And then interspersed with that, as you say, are clips from other episodes. I just assumed that it was all from previous episodes, but you're right. Maybe they did film that little intermingling part just for this, and that is his fantasy of their future relationship yeah, together. Yeah, because I, I feel like this is like the start of their relationship together, because like that was their first kiss, right? Before? I guess. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it. I mean, yeah. the, the, the hesitancy that they have and how they were talking about their first kiss. Yeah, that this is probably the first chance of them coming together. But what's especially important, what is the best part of this montage, Danny, is what really got us started with this. There's a flaming lifeguard tower in the background. <laughs> yes. It's fantastic. I can't wait till we really get to one of those episodes. Uh, because again, secret origin time, the fact that... We watched, what, two or three episodes just for fun many, many yeah. moons ago. And something we noted is that each one, a tower exploded. <laughs> and it was like, does this happen every episode? And hell, we've talked about many at this point, and none. Yes. none. But this is, gives us hope for the future. Oh, there's definitely going to be exploding towers. I can't wait. 
on pins and needles. Now, as the flashback ends, their makeout intensifies. They move to the floor in front of the fire. Mm, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder. Lightning streaks across the stock footage, and the situation has not improved at Baywatch headquarters. Things are tense. As hot as they are at the apartment, they are tense at headquarters, and Dick is pacing around. Weasel Frank, he keeps his eyes glued on Gina, too, the whole time. He's moved on from Jill Yeah, now. I was going to say, like, he had his eyes on Gina, but or Jill, but now it's all focused on Gina. It's a missed opportunity to give Jill something else to do in this episode, also to pay off their earlier interactions. And it doesn't make any sense that he's moved from the blonde to the brunette just arbitrarily. But Weasel Frank is just a weasel, so who knows? This scene, though, does give us an opportunity to be reminded that Gina, too, is a bitch. This guy is really giving me the creeps. Honey, he's staring at me. Like, quite frankly, like, she yells at her husband that this guy's looking at her. What the hell do you want me to do? He's got a gun pointed at me. <laughs> Just let him look. <laughs> Get over it. Quit looking at him. <laughs> Alex and Hobie, they're watching the black and white movie that you were thinking the, about the before. The monster Dracula movie, yes. It's not a Dracula film. It's, I'm really glad that you said that. It does star Bella Lugosi, who was the original Dracula, but this is actually White Zombie. The white zombie obeys the unholy commands of her demon master. Okay. Yes, and the reason that I know that is because I'm me, uh, but also a number of years ago, I saw it on a double bill with the original Night of the Living Dead. I was going to say that I'm surprised that you recognize it from just that small little snippet we got. It took some research. It took a little <laughs> bit of digging into... Well, he has very distinctive facial hair uh, in this scene, and... and you know, it is kind of silly that I knew what it was and was able to find out. But it's even sillier that these children are watching this movie because I can tell you by the time we got to White Zombie at the theater that night, I was the only one still awake. And by the end of that, I was struggling as well. So it's not the most exciting movie, but I bet you it was cheap. Well, they also don't spend a lot of time watching the movie because then Hobie starts to tell a scary story. Yes, a very strange scary story. The Watermelon Man. Watermelon Baby. Baby. Even worse. And to be honest, this period of time, I was a little worried there'd be some sort of uncomfortable racial aspect of this story. But no, instead, it's just this stupid thing about a baby that was only fed watermelon. I, I didn't follow it. It was the weirdest thing. But it works <laughs> at least on Alex because at the same time the power goes off allowing them to cuddle closer. She asks Hobie to hold her. Could, could you hold me um, just for a minute? Again, the, the discomfort grows. <laughs> Kids do whatever you want to do. But... I, I will say it was innocent because it was just a, a long hug and they're alone in a house that's not even fully covered in the middle of a storm together. I mean, I would be terrified too. Yeah, I, I got it. Yeah, I'm not going to dog them for that. Again, I, if, I probably would be hanging all up on you. <laughs> if it were, if we were 12, when we were talking about this, it would be very different. But we're grown ass men having to look at these <laughs> children get a little too intimate. But again, the power is off. And this is when Hobie produces matches. Who the hell left these kids alone, number one? Two, a boy and a girl, alone. And number three, with access to matches. <laughs> like, I know that they're 12 or whatever, but still. Were the contractors left in charge? This is some latchkey parenting. Well, we also did find out that Alex 
did contact her mom and she wanted her to stay at Hobie's. She didn't want her out in the storm. No, that's not what happened. That's not? No. What happened was she chose to not call her mother because she knew that she would make her come home. Oh. Which, that was part of it that made it feel even a little more uncomfortable that this little girl is specifically avoiding her parents so she can continue to spend time with this young boy alone. The whole thing is weird. (laughs) I don't like it. And we're going to move on. Because the emergency generators at Baywatch headquarters now are working away. The power loss has hit this part of California as well. And Frank the Weasel continues to stare at Gina too. Holes right through her. He even starts to approach her. Get up. Come on, I'm not going to hurt you. These criminals don't like the dark. And he's now going to take Gina too as collateral to go look around Baywatch headquarters. For the emergency generator. Yeah, that doesn't work so well with lawyer lifeguard Craig, and he stands to protest, but Frank points that gun right in his face, and we get another lifeguard-specific put-down. Sit down. Sit down. Double dare me, life boy. You know I'll do it. (laughs) Life boy, which... Is that even an insult? I don't think so. Sounds kind of nice. Yeah. Anyway, he's got Gina 2 by the arm and he wrenches her up. But just then God intervened. <laughs> There's a giant flash of lightning lighting up the outside. And we see a crossbeam suspiciously, strangely, unnaturally lift on its own as a support column crashes through one of the giant windows. Yeah, it was a support column for the awning. that are That is outdoor, yeah. yes. And everyone... Dives to the floor. There's broken glass flying everywhere. And all in slow motion. Yes. It's supposed to be an incredibly dramatic scene, but to me, it just looks like, okay, a window got broken. I, I will say, Frank, paranoid criminal, did actually seem like he protected Gina because he like, kind of like threw her to the ground and like kind of like covered over her. He did. However, you could also look at it in another way. She was falling forward and landing butt up. He jumped on her back. <laughs> so uh, there may be more going on there. Well, Craig takes this opportunity to get a whack at uh, Mr. Frank. Yeah, he jumps right on. That's a good man. I mean, he yeah. knows what he's doing, but it doesn't work because he immediately gets pistol whipped right <laughs> in the face by Weasel Frank. <laughs> this is a dangerous criminal. You maybe should have moved a little faster, but it didn't matter anyway because Dick is right nearby with his own gun, which is when Craig is writhing on the floor, obviously dazed from being hit with a gun, but Mitch is begging them not to shoot. And that takes us right into our next commercial. You got 50,000 on Double Dragon? Fred Savage has a plan. He's headed for the video championships. It's going to take a lot of talent. Ellie! Here we come! A little romance. I am not kissing a boy. And the wizard. Video Armageddon. You can do it! You're the best! Fred Savage in The Wizard. Free Nintendo Pocket Power Magazine with admission while supplies last. Starts Friday, December 15th at theaters everywhere. Consult your local listings. For Shelley Long. You never give me an ounce of credit for anything I do. That's because you never do anything. The good life was winding down. So now. Approve. She's joining up. Through Beverly Hills. And going from social service. Do you like people to call you dictator or just dick? To public service. Lie down. And open your mouth. True, Beverly Hills. Last time I did this, I got more than a patch for it. Ready to PG. Starts Wednesday, March 22nd at a theater near you. Luckily, Baywatch headquarters is fully appointed and stocked, which allows Mitch and Sid to have enough time and resources to start boarding up the windows. 
Uh, are the lights back on at this point? Because I feel like this, I remember this scene being bright. Yes, the okay. generator is still on at okay. this point. So that before, like, it seemed like the lights went out. It was very confusing. Yeah. I, I, who knows if they were paying attention to the continuity within those <laughs> scenes. But as far as our purposes, yes, the lights are still on. Dick tries to calm Frank down because he is obviously freaking out. The tension in the scenario has increased. I mean, hell, now we've had a little scuffle with the hostages. We've had some nature action creating something. Now we're into some home improvements <laughs> with boarding up the windows. But it's 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 tense. It's tense. But Gina, too, she's busy, not really paying attention. She's tending to lawyer lifeguard Craig's injury. They take some time to reconcile, to talk cute. But at the same time, their relationship is still antagonistic here. You are in big trouble, mister. What did I do? You could have gotten yourself killed. That's what you did. Uh, Gina. They're still jabbing at each other. Yeah, Gina was mad at Craig that he did something so risky. But he like kind of like brought up some like dark implications that Frank wasn't just going to go down there to check the generator. He was he insinuated that he she might have just gotten raped. He wasn't going to drag you downstairs for a nice stroll to the locker room. He doesn't say that specifically, but yeah, it's clear there. And what the hell was she yelling at him about before, if not to act? There's nothing making Gina too happy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why their apartment looks so wild, is that she can't she's make it. She's bipolar. Dis- exactly. <laughs> like, she's borderline, maybe, and she's like, oh, I like this, I like this. And anyway, we'll leave the psychology to Mitch, because the power... <laughs> Because the power is still on at the radio station, and Trevor has just finished up his audition. And apparently he's killed it. They love me. Said I was just a sort of colorful personality they were looking for. Well, at least he's letting everybody know that he killed it. This is one cocky guy. And Captain Don falls for it a little, or at least believes him, because he starts to push for information. He wants to know from Trevor, well, what do they ask? What, What do you have to do in there? And Trevor's not giving anything up. Well, he did say that like they liked that he was a surfer, which we also now find out that Captain Don was quite a surfer in his day. Boy, Sunset Beach. Two weeks every winter. I used to compete there. Hell, I competed everywhere. Even your own Australia. Wow. Really? Yeah. The last time was the Gold Coast, 1968. Captain Don... He smokes Trevor at this point. He drops all of this surfing background knowledge that he has, all the surfing experience that he has. It turns out that while this might just look like a stuffy old man, he has a whole life that you aren't privy to. And when he has the chance, he surfs. But he doesn't surf these little pussy waves in California. (laughs) No, he travels the world. And to spots and with people that Trevor is very impressed by. The only three of us made it to the final round of competition. I lost out to a, a local named Midget. Midget Farrelly? Yeah. You kidding me? You remember him? <laughs> remember him? He was my idol. I nearly broke my neck trying to pull off some of his maneuvers. <laughs> he was amazing. But he was not impressed. The sonar guy in between them. He does not believe Captain Don for a second. Don't listen to him, man. Earlier you told me he was a lifeguard. <laughs> N- no, who knows if he even knows what's going on at this point. No. I mean, he he, he is not believing any of it. I mean, and why bother? Why should you at that point? And actually in this in this scene, I reevaluated his earring. It was flopping all over the place and I actually think it was maybe a shark, like a large metal shark thing instead of an electric guitar, but I guess it doesn't really matter because this is the last we see of any of this. Yeah. We don't find out if Trevor or Captain Don get the part. Well, there is a scene at the end which we'll get to. Uh, I'll explain. Okay, good. I something new for me. Good job, Danny. Yeah. It's time though for Garner 
to arrive at Baywatch headquarters under cover of night and the weight of the storm. Gun in hand, he is ready. He is a Terminator at this point. <laughs> There's nothing gonna stop Garner from getting to his goal. He, he sneaks very clumsily <laughs> under a window where Mitch can see him crawl by, but luckily only Mitch sees him because Frank has his back to the window at the time, gun in hand himself. Garner motions to Mitch in that fun, goofy, silent hand language way that he needs to do something. It's not clear. He points again at something, and he does the finger motion across the throat. Yeah, but Mitch just, he doesn't acknowledge any of it, because I don't even think Mitch knows what Garner's planning. Exactly, and he also doesn't want anyone to realize, oh shit, there's somebody right out that (laughs) window that I'm looking at. But it's turned into a diehard situation a little bit. There are hostages being held in a facility. There is one man with a gun that is physically impaired that has to save everybody. Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. It's kind of cool. And Garner tries the garage door, finds that it's open, and sort of does a roll. It's one of those uh, garage doors that, like, go up. Exactly. Not like an actual, like, normal door. Right, exactly. It's definitely the roll, metal roll yeah. kind, and so he pulls it up just enough that he can fit underneath and trying again to make as little noise as possible. He's still, you know, stealthily. Inside headquarters, though, the tension, it's gotten to Frank. It's now too much. All the hostages, though, they look pretty bored by, <laughs> by everything. There's not even a magazine to be had. This is when the generator finally runs out of juice. Or maybe Garner had something to do with it. That's what I was thinking. Me too, because the sequence of events seems to be coordinated. But here, the criminals freak out. I guess they have a pathological fear of the dark or something. (laughs) Um, I mean, hell, I I understand. Nobody likes to be in the dark. And Dick grabs Jill and demands that he take her to where the fuel is, that they are going to fix this situation that, hell, it might not be comfortable, but they're going to have the lights on. I think Mitch jumps in and be like, you know, let me go. And But no, not having it. They want Jill to go. Shut up. Yeah, of course. Mitch, again, is trying his best to do his duty and also take the spotlight. But no, it's time for Jill. But Jill doesn't even get much to do because Dick snatches the flashlight right out of her hand as they enter the garage. He's, he doesn't trust her. He's not as paranoid as Frank, but he's no dummy either. And they don't see anything in the garage. It seems to be empty. But we all know that it's not. Yes. Garner is hiding behind one of the trucks. Garner then rushes uh, Dick, uh, pins him against the wall. They have a struggle. I think, does the gun go off at this point? No. No. The gun does not go off. Okay. But it's loud enough that everybody outside can hear that there's something going on. Dick? Dick, everything all right? This is when Mitch finally has something to do because Frank demands that you're coming with me. We're going to check this out and figure out what's going on. He points the gun right at Mitch's back. Snatches the flashlight away from him. These are some snatching bastards, (laughs) I'm telling you. They slowly go down the stairs. Yes. The scene we come into is we see a long hallway and at the end, the door is wide open. Yes. We see the storm in the background. And it's a large series set of double doors. It, it, it's, it almost looks like probably the main entrance to this location. Yeah, it, the only light pouring in is from there, I guess from the moon, uh, possibly. And it's a very ominous scene. But again, no one's there. Except we do see Jill lying face down on the ground to the side. Yes. How could this have happened? What did we miss? We don't know. We know there's a scuffle. And so does Mitch. And he runs over to attend to Jill to figure out what's going on. But... Just then, 
They're all illuminated by a well-timed bolt of lightning. God is on everybody's side here, and we find Garner standing in the doorway. Just appears like it, like actually like a like we've talked about a lot, but like a horror movie scene. Exactly. This is a angel of vengeance <laughs> appearing in the night. Gun at the ready. Frank sees this, but he has no time to react. And plus. Garner has rage on his side. He fires his pistol and hits Frank squarely in the upper chest, sending him crashing to the floor, Death Wish style. There is no guilt or shame or recrimination on Garner's face. He has done justice at this point. Do we find out if he killed him or? All we know is that it was a hard enough shot that Frank is passed out and on the floor. These are some very interesting bullets they've got here in California. They don't just maim you, they also put you to sleep. <laughs> Mitch and Jill rush to Garner's side, which is great because just then the last of Garner's strength gives out. I think well, I think it's insinuated that Jill was faking being passed out on the floor to, I guess, make a distraction. What, what, I, what we have to put together here is a lot but let's play it this way. As Garner and Dick were struggling in the garage, something happened that in incapacitated Dick. What I like to think is that Jill got some agency, picked up a fucking wrench, and smashed him in the back of the head. They, they put him to the side. They quickly decided, I'm going to pass out here. You hide behind the door. <laughs> and that's what happened. Because yeah. as soon as like Garner shot him, they, Mitch and Jill got up and like went into the garage to yes. get out of the way. They were clearly not concerned about Dick at this point. <laughs> which honestly, Dick should always be on your mind. You never know when it would be important. So conditions have improved enough that the power is restored, at least at Mitch's place. And Hobie One and Alex are still hanging out in front of the television. They aren't watching any horror movies anymore. Now they're just watching the news and they're giving us reports of the damage that the storm has done. I guess the danger is now passed. And a honk from outside informs us that, oh, thank God, this uncomfortable situation is now over. This must be Alex's family. And it is. It's her mom picking her up, which I find it weird that the mom is honking and not coming to the door. Because you think she would have been worried where her daughter was during the storm. Or even worse, if she knew where her daughter was alone with another preteen boy. Yeah. So it just it's odd that she's just honking for her to come on. It's one less actor to cast. Uh, <laughs> we can look at it that way. And it doesn't matter because, again, the scene ends. This is the last of their interaction. Hobie One tries to tell her what a good time they had together. It's very much like at the end of the date. Uh, you're you're re relating that this was definitely a worthwhile experience. And they share a very limp kiss on the lips uh, before Alex makes her exit. I think you're great. I think you're great, too. And... What's very odd about all of this, not just the discomfort that we felt, we never see Alex again. This is her only appearance in Baywatch. We, she wasn't on an episode before. She wasn't on an episode after. In this episode, they didn't introduce her at all. She's just there. I mean, I'm happy for a Jenny Lewis appearance at all, but it's very odd. But also odd, lots of gray areas that we have to fill in for ourselves here. We go back to Eddie and Shawnee, and they're cuddled up against the fire, mostly passed out. The rest of the party never showed up. And their clothes are on, so I don't think it's indicated that they hooked up. I was absolutely, my final line really is, did they have sex? You don't have to take all your clothes off to have sex. And we, we see them, they are lying down together in front of the fire. They have a blanket over them. We don't see anything below waist level at all. Hell, we don't see below chest. They could have gotten things going. 
I, I put it to you this way. This was the 80s still. They, this is like their first time together, their first kiss. I don't think producers would have indicated that they would be having sex at this point. Well, considering that where we are in the episode, let's move on. The end. Wait, no, because there is one oh. more thing. Oh, yes. This, so in the background, you can hear the radio. And yes. you know whose voice it is? No. It's Clayton's. We've got a new surf reporter at the station, and he tells me we should have quite a swell for the next few days. That's right. That'll be plenty dangerous, so I don't want to see any surfers out until the waves have calmed down. Hey, man, what are you talking about? Lifeguard's going to be busy enough without having to babysit a bunch of hot-dogging airheads that don't know enough to keep out of storm waves. Who let that guy in here? The, Captain Don, he got the job, I think. I think that's what's indicated. It's not, but it's not just him. It's also like another radio person and they're bantering a little bit. I didn't hear that at all. Yes. I will absolutely be going back and getting into that yes. because that's the way you tie shit together. Yes. Bring things back. Well, you're probably right. I am absolutely right. That makes me so much happier to say <laughs> the end of Baywatch season one, episode 11, Shelter Me. Danny, we have gotten into it a little bit already. What did you think? I don't know. I felt like this episode was a little lackluster. The whole hostage situation, like, it was tense, but, like, I don't, it just didn't really go anywhere. It, it did feel like the middle chapter of a bigger story, but it'd be outside of our, of our rules if I were to watch it before or after. But I did some reading and stuff. Yeah, none of this comes back into play at all. I think the only ongoing important thing that we got from this episode is Eddie and, and Shawnee. Shawnee exactly. Together. That their relationship is progressing. Because from the bits that we've seen, this is how lawyer lifeguard Craig and Gina too always act with one <laughs> another. They do not have the healthiest relationship. And as we'll discover, they end up divorcing down the line. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, you do. Because remember, April and lawyer lifeguard Craig. That's right. Yes. Oh my God, I forgot about that. And he specifically references his divorce. So we know things aren't going to work out for those two. Spoiler. Yeah, so... Was there anything you did like? What did I like? Mm-hmm. Give me a second to think. <laughs> Take your time. I do like the fact that Garner got like some action. Because I feel like he's just more of kind of like a side character that doesn't really get to do much. What's cool, I think, is I'm glad you say that because our first episode, Homecoming, Garner got his own B-plot. He got his own girlfriend or at least relationship or at least some doing it. An unhealthy relationship because she was kind of a... She was a judgmental... Emo emotionally abusive. <laughs> yes, she was not the nicest person, but it, still, Garner at least got some shine. Well, we haven't even watched a full season of, of any of this yet. Garner, again, gets something to do because it does feel like he gets shoved in the background a lot or, oh, he's just another element to everything. Yeah, just like the kind of cop element when they just need it for like purposes, like knowing if someone's bad on the beach or... Yeah, warning us that this person yeah. has, used to do this. Or, or comes in at the end just to arrest someone. So, yeah. That's a very yeah. good point. He yeah. got his nice little action scene going. So, good for Garner. Mm -hmm. I think the standout star of this episode was Shawnee's unibrow. <laughs> it was very prominent. That's true, but it didn't really get the chance to shine <laughs> that I think that we'll see in some other episodes. Um, I, I, I don't want to be cruel by yeah. any means. I, I mean... Aaron, I love you. You're beautiful. But yeah, the that eyebrow 
back in the day. I'm sorry. <laughs> Retroactively, I'm sure you could say all sorts of things about fashion. Um, I do like her character, and I, the actress, she's beautiful, and I like watching her. But yeah, that unibrow is something to get past. And, <laughs> and we're not, it's no judgment, yeah. you know, because after the fact, you know, yeah. water under the bridge. I doubt that she looks like that now, and if she does, well, power to you if that's what your choice is. But uh, we might come at her with some wax. So for me, though, yeah, this was definitely the weakest episode that we've watched in a number of ways. Like I touched on at the beginning, the makeup of the cast is not very balanced. Not that it ever was necessarily, but it feels like we're being pulled in so many different directions that could tie together. But again, they just choose not to. It makes me not at all surprised that this did not last on network television. There's plenty of shitty TV shows that go on for years and years, but when I looked at the Nielsen ratings and the other sort of shows that were out at this time, you gotta step up your game a little bit. We have, I wanna say 10 main cast members in this episode alone, and Jill and Sid do absolutely nothing. They don't get to do anything. And even the opportunity that Jill might have had, it was taken away by Gina too stuff. Right. Which also ultimately didn't end up being much at all anyways. Exactly. So you wonder why was that shifted to her in the first place? Did the producers just not like Jill and they didn't want to give her any focus? I'll admit that Gina too, just at looking at her is more compelling than Jill. But I certainly don't like Gina, too. I mean, I will not be upset to see her go. <laughs> but um, there are things to like in the episode, just like any other episode of Baywatch. But the signature bits of Baywatch are not there. We don't have flesh. We don't yeah. have rescues. We don't have beach action. It. I feel like, you know, in season one, there's probably not going to be as much campiness as we'll get in later seasons. So Yeah, maybe. They, they were clearly going for something but it doesn't work for me. Yeah. And and honestly, on a lot of our other episodes, I would recommend them to other people to watch. Or the hell, there's things you can find this one, throw it right in the trash. If anything, fast forward to The Hideous Apartment just so that you can experience how, <laughs> where we've come from, how far we've come. But uh, other than that, no. There, there's really nothing worth seeing. And I say all of that, except for Jenny Lewis. Alex, Hobie's, Hobie-Wan's <laughs> little friend here. Uh, she doesn't get that much to do, but she's sparkling. Like, she is a very, very natural actress, and she's compelling. I, I would love to see more of this character in particular, and to know that she doesn't come back is disappointing, and really just makes me want to watch The Wizard. I kind of feel like most of Hobie's friends are, like, just one-off characters. Yeah, unfortunately. I think we've seen Landon a yeah, couple times. Yeah, I think times. Landon gets mentioned a couple times. Yeah, but it, the rest of these people just get thrown to the wolves. <laughs> and uh, hell, maybe she got a better opportunity. She was appearing in films and things at this point, so maybe they just couldn't keep her around. But uh, no, this is a uh, this is a miss uh, for me. Uh, I don't regret that we watched it because we're going to watch all of them, and this adds some more bricks to the wall of what make up Baywatch, but eh. What's your rating there, Dan? I give it... Five unibrows out of ten. You're gonna be careful with that unibrow thing. I know. I'm sorry. I don't mean to give anyone a complex. No, not take care of it. Not that. Just you. We might end up just using eyebrow for every episode that Shawnee appears in. I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Again, I will say the storm did her some good because when that bit of hair was covering one eye and the unibrow, (laughs) wow, she looked. I don't know. She looked very interesting. (laughs) But once it was revealed that she needed a trip to the salon, it was like, oh. Okay. 
but enough meanness. Yeah, sorry. That's that's Baywatch. Uh, it, it they aren't all winners, <laughs> and uh, this was this was one of the ones that was not. So now we are going to move on to the part of our episode where we pick the next episode we're going to watch. And Denny, how do we do that? By spinning our beach bingo ball cage. Did we come up with a an actual name? What we call no. This? We have not come up with any clever okay. name, but I like the alliteration. Uh, we'll figure out some sort of configuration of that. <laughs> so we're going to spin to win and see what we will be watching next. What do we got, Denny? We have season 11, episode 15. From 2001, yes, we are back in Hawaii yet again, and the storms continue because a major hurricane hits the Hawaiian Islands in which Sean is trapped with Jenna in an underground bunker, which rising floodwaters threaten to drown them both unless they put aside their personal conflicts and hatred of one another to survive the day. A good man in a storm. Ooh, more a bit more uh, a Sean heavy episode. Yes, and from what I've seen, he is sweaty and shirtless for most of it. So I look forward to this. Me too. A trip back to Hawaii, our third Hawaiian episode already, but they've served us well so far. So hopefully we'll have fun when we get there. And now we're finally at the end of our episode of Hot Red Shorts, a Gay Watch of Baywatch. You can follow us at Hot Red Shorts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please visit our website, hotredshorts.com, where you can see show notes and the cards that I make for every episode. And please follow us on any of your favorite podcatchers, Spotify, iTunes, Amazon, wherever. And if you like us, please leave a review. It would be very appreciated. I've been Josh. I'm Denny. And thanks for listening. 